Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's get right at it this morning. You have a scripture sheet that you can take a few notes, and uh, let's look now at John chapter 3 once again. John chapter 3, uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, we're going to get right at it this morning and talk about, this is, this is week 9 in our study of the book of John. Last week, Pastor Matt preached what I have called the pinnacle passage of the book of John, having to do with that great verse that so many of us learned and memorized when we were children. Maybe you're yet to memorize it. I encourage you to do it. John three sixteen followed by 17. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. Now, I'm going to pick it up in verse 18, but I kind of like to get a running start. So, uh, I would like you to stand and help me. I am going to read from verses 14 through 17. I'll read verses 14 through 17, and I would like you in a good, strong voice, paying attention to the punctuation, you help me beginning at verse 18, and let's read very carefully what the Word of God says to us. Now, verse number 14, I'll read. Listen up. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Join me now. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And our Father, add your blessing to the preaching and to the teaching of your word. Lord, this is a magnificent section of the New Testament, a pinnacle passage, I believe, in the book of John, John 3.16. We follow it up now, that amazing passage on your unbounded love. Now we look a little bit further and find that there's a contingency. I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I want you to take your pen and mark something with me. Mark something with me. Look at verse number 15. I want you to mark in your Bible, verse number 15, the very first word of the verse says, that, T-H-A-T, whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 16, for God so loved the world, there it is again, that. Circle it, underline it, put a star by it. The next phrase, that he gave his only begotten son, here it comes again, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then again in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm amazed at how many times in the Scriptures we miss this whole point. We miss the that. We miss the so that. And sometimes when we do that, we're not getting the understanding of the passage because it's telling you this information is in order that or so that or for the benefit of. And this is so important to us. The that's explain the why of God's actions, His movements, or His revelations to us. Now, Pastor Matt, 
identified verse 16 of the passage as the greatest decoration of both the wrath of God and the love of God that you will ever see in all of the Scripture. Somebody says, well, where does God demonstrate His wrath? At the cross. Because at the cross, the sin of all mankind was judged in the person of Christ. Where is the greatest demonstration of His love? At the cross. Because at the cross, those sins that separated are atoned for, propitiated. They are removed, taken out of the way. And I am free to come into His presence, behind the veil, so to speak, and to be in His presence. And so it is amazing, amazing for us to see this. And these that's now... These that's explain the objective. His objective is so clear. Verse 15, that whoever believes should not perish. Verse 16, whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, that the world through him might be saved. Now, if I were to just shorten it and say what's his objective? Not perish, have eternal life, have everlasting life, be saved and rescued. Eternal life, that's a forever kind of life. Everlasting life, uh, or eternal life is a quality of life, everlasting life, a, a forever life, so that we can have these things. And I just want to share this. This is so important. I don't know how much clearer it can be, but God's indescribable gift of His Son had the objective of saving sinners. Why? Because it all flows out of the love of God. If we, if, if we don't ever understand anything about the New Testament and about the Word of God and about God Himself, we need to understand that God loves us. God loves people. God loves the whole world. God loved us. Let me read you a few passages quickly about the love of God. Now, I'm speaking of the Father. We know Jesus loves us. We sing about it. Uh, but the Father, uh, the Bible says in John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Watch this. And my Father will love him. John 17, 23, I in them you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We're talking about the Father. First John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we could be called the children of God. How about First John 4, 10? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. Second Thessalonians 2.16, I'm talking about the love of the Father. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our, our, and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation. Romans 5.5, 5, I quote this verse all the time. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we have been given. Romans 5, 8, this verse captured my soul as a young person. This verse captured me for all of eternity. It says this, but God demonstrates or he proves his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. We studied this in Ephesians 2 when we were there in that passage. God who is rich in mercy, amen, he's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know what? We sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and we ought to, because it's true. Jesus does love us, but we also ought to understand that the Father 
loves us. The Father has set His affection on you and me. He set His affection on sinners, rebels, disobedient people, wicked, and even people dead in sins, not connected, no connection with God whatsoever, no fellowship, no relationship, unconnected, we're dead, but He set His love on us. God loves us. And what did He do? Well, He sent His one. His one and only Son is unique. His unparalleled, eternal, perfect, sinless Son to pay a debt that He did not owe so that we could receive a life that we do not deserve. The love of God. Now, if you don't hear me say anything else today, I want to emphasize this from the very outset. Make sure you understand that I want to tell you from this pulpit, just like the one in the other room, and every time we stand up, we want you to know that God loves you and He has proved it. How many of you believe that? Say amen. Amen. God loves you, and He has proved it. He's good. But now then, look at verse 16 again, because the name of this this sermon this morning, we're in the year of popularity of Christ, His first year of ministry, many miracles, many wonders, many feedings, many healings. People are crazy about Jesus in His first year. A different time is coming. Hear, Hear what He has to say here right in the middle of this incredible passage in verse number 16. It says again, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not, what's the word? Perish. There's a contingency here. There is responsibility here. There is something required of people. Somebody's going to say, "Uh uh-oh. I thought salvation was a free gift. And I can say to you, yes, it is, and exactly. It's totally, completely, unequivocally free. God gives us the gift of eternal life. But do you know, a gift has got to be received. Ever woke up on Christmas morning and had people, you know, you shared gifts, you give gifts, you receive gifts, but what if the gift you gave, somebody said, well, well, that's just so nice of you to think of me and everything like that. I believe that's a good gift, a wonderful gift, but I'm just going to have a hands-off. You just hold on to it, and I'm thankful for your gift. Well, you got to receive the gift. The New Testament is full of believe and receive, believe and receive, the gift. I mean, Jesus' first sermon, receive the kingdom of God. The, John's first sermon, repent, believe the gospel, receive eternal life, all the way through, believe and receive. Oh, it is so incredibly important. God loved us, and he sent his son to pay for our freedom from sin's penalty, but we must believe. We must be born again. It takes us back to chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, where this incredible situation comes up where he came to his own and his own what received him not but as many as did receive him to them gave he power to become the children of God as many as believed in his name believe and receive receive and believe it's all the way through the New Testament there's a contingency it is so important for us to understand this now we learn that this believing is not some superficial belief in a set of facts it's not like saying oh yeah I heard all that before. Yep, yep, yep. I've got all that information. No, no, no. It's not just information in the head. It is the want to of the heart. It is the heart saying, yep, that's for me. I, I, I want that salvation that Jesus, Jesus offers. Now, in the midst of this passage on God's love, Christ's sacrifice, his, this believing and receiving, this everlasting forever kind of life, this eternal, this per- perfect quality of life, we have this troubling con- concept of the word condemnation. What? I thought we were talking about the love of God. Right in the middle of this passage comes the word 
perish. And the word four times condemnation, five times if you include the word perish. This is so important. Now, Pastor Phil, let's just stick with the love of God this morning. God's not a God of condemnation. He's a God of forgiveness. Well, my friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is both a message of wrath and a message of love. I told you about Matt's sermon last week. The gospel, and I've said this in this pulpit, in this room, and I don't know how many times in the other pulpit. Please hear me. The gospel is good news, but the gospel must first wound us before it can heal us. It is so incredibly important. The gospel is God's answer to sin's cursed and... It is his loving provision of his son as a sacrifice. You say, well, I'm not convinced. Okay, let's walk through the passage. Verse number 16, somebody's going to perish. What's that word? Well, it means to be lost, destroyed utterly, to be condemned eternally, punished eternally, spiritually destitute, or to be cut off. Sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? Perish. Verse 17, Jesus did not come, he says, did not come to condemn the world. That word condemn is the same word as the word judge. Judge, pass judgment on, or commit to punishment. Verse 18, not condemned, and also condemned already. Verse 19, condemnation has a cause, and it has a consequence. All of these right here, right on top of, for God so loved the world. So that's a confusing message. No, it isn't. It is telling us exactly just how great God's love is. Please listen. In this same glorious passage about God's love and Jesus' sacrifice, we have the mention of condemnation four times, five times, if you count the word perish, which is the result of condemnation. Pastor Phil, what's the point? The point is this. God has paid the ultimate price because of his love for us. Sinners as we are, and we have to do something with the gift of God. We either believe him and receive him, committing our all to him, or we reject him, preferring our sin, preferring our condemnation. Here's the statement. Write it somewhere. There is no middle ground. None. There is no such thing as standing off to the side and saying, well, I'm just going to contemplate everything you're saying up there, and I'll give some consideration to it, and then at some point in time I might decide. Sorry, you're already decided. Let me unpack this for you this morning. Four questions. Four simple questions of the text that the text is asking and examining us. And here they are. I'm going to give you the questions right away so you know where I'm going. Number one, who is condemned? Question number one, who is condemned? Question number two, when is he or she condemned? When? Question number three, why is he or she condemned? Question number four, who escapes condemnation? Who is condemned? When is he condemned? Why is he condemned? And who escapes condemnation? Very important questions. Let's look at the first one. Who is condemned? Fill in your blanks. I gave you blanks so you can fill them in. Who is condemned? Not believers, but those who do not believe are condemned. Verse number 18. Now, folks, I didn't write the Bible. I'm reading black ink and sometimes red ink on white paper. And we're looking at it this morning. Verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten, only begotten Son. Now, watch this. Who is condemned? Well, under that section, believers are not condemned. How many, how many of you at some point in life heard the good news of the gospel? 
You understood you were lost, separated from God, helpless, hopeless, and that you were dead spiritually, but that Jesus came to save you from your sin. You heard that good news, and you called on Jesus, and you believe in him. Raise your hand and say amen. 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 All right. Well, wonderful. Believers are not condemned. Verse 16 says believers would not perish. 18 says they're not condemned. Uh, This is wonderful news. No condemnation. No judgment pending. For those that are in Christ. Now we're going to get there soon, but 336 of John says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. 524 says, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Listen to this. And shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but is passed from death to life. John 647, so simple. Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. So who is condemned? Well, believers are not condemned, says so, verse 18. But unbelievers. Unbelievers are condemned. Why? Why? What's the big deal here? Well, what's their condition? Number one, you might want to write this down too. They have not come. They have not believed. They do not believe. So past tense, there hadn't been a date they can point to and say, Boy, under these circumstances and on that time, at that time, I understood the gospel and I believed. They have not believed in the past. They do not believe in the moment. They're in their natural state of unbelief. They're in a state of condemnation because they are still in a state of unbelief. Let me hurry. Number two, when? Second question, when are believers condemned? Let's read verse number 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned. What does it say? already. What was the one thing that condemned them? The answer is very unpopular. The answer is this. What is it that condemned them? Well, they were born in sin because of the fall of Adam, and, he, they ha- and God has condemned the entire race of man because we're all guilty, and we all sinned in Adam. Romans five twelve and five. That's not fair. I just don't like that at all. Why am I guilty because of what some guy did seven thousand, eight thousand years ago? It's just not fair. First of all, fairness, human fairness, is not a Bible concept. Justice, grace, and mercy are Bible concepts. So scratch the fairness thing. Let me go on. This is one of the most, I don't have time to unpack this. I'll preach it on another day, but listen up. (laughs) Somebody says, why am I held accountable for what the first man did? Well, one of the most glorious truths in the Bible is this, is that God condemned all people for the sin of one man. Yes, he did. In Adam, Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, women, boys, girls, children, death passed on everybody, because all have sinned. We sinned in Adam, and we sinned like Adam. Yeah, we sinned in Adam, and we sinned. It doesn't take long for a baby to begin sinning. How many of you can say amen to that? They grow up, and boy, they, they, they come, <laughs> it comes full circle really quick. Now watch. Because of the sin of one man, we have been condemned. So that also by the obedience and sacrifice of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, you can be redeemed, forgiven. Now watch it. One man, sin in him, head of the race, 
Every human born after him inherited the sin nature from him and like him practices sin. One man. And then the second Adam. One man. Jesus Christ the righteous who never sinned went to the cross, demonstrated the love of God, took our sins upon himself. He never sinned, but he died for sin. You see, the wages of sin is, and Jesus paid the death. One man sinned. One man lived righteously. The righteous one died for the sinner. Oh, what a glorious truth. Your redemption and forgiveness are a gift from our Father in heaven. This is so important for us to understand The unwelcomed gift from Adam was the sin nature. The free gift and amazing gift of God is forgiveness and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. In both cases, you do nothing but be born. You're born physically as a sinner, and you must be born again to become a saint. Now, this is what Jesus told Nicodemus when he was speaking to them. But what is the main point of of this whole section? We are already condemned. We have been judged guilty. We're headed toward the sentence of that judgment. Think of a courtroom. You go into the courtroom, they look at your case and said, guilty. The only difference is they don't have to look at the evidence. They don't have to hear witnesses. They don't, no, no, no. We're guilty before we ever get, I mean, before we ever even commit anything, we're guilty. And then also because of all the things we commit. We go into the courtroom where we are declared guilty, judged, condemned, and we're waiting sentence. So important for us to understand. We're headed toward that sentence of judgment, which is separation from God forever in hell. Pastor, this is 2022. Is there something wrong with you? I mean, how dare you even say that word or concept? And we're too educated. We're too sophisticated. We're way beyond that. This mythology of the past century. No, folks, the Bible hasn't been rewritten. rewritten. The sin, listen, the wages of sin is death. And when death is finished, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Burns with fire and brimstone forever. It's, it's hell. The Bible still teaches on hell. Says, I just can't believe you're teaching on hell. I, can't, I just don't believe anybody ought to be doing Listen, the reason we're in such trouble in America is because preachers quit preaching on hell a long time ago. This means that all people who are unbelievers, make sure you get this, all people who are unbelievers are right now already condemned. Why? Because they are in the present active state of condemnation. Present active state of condemnation. Right here, right now, if I'm not a believer, then I stand condemned even if I hadn't even thought about the subject. Whoa. Number three, quickly, why are unbelievers condemned? I object, Pastor Phil, you're taking this glorious passage about the good news and you're making it about judgment. Can't you read Verse 17 says plainly that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So what is this? He came to save sinners, heal the sick, open blind eyes, and not condemn people like you are this morning. Folks, I'm reading black and red ink on white paper. Red ink, too, this morning. I'm, read, I'm just reading to you the Word of God and telling you what it says. I'm, I'm discovering what it says, understanding what it means, making a clear application. I'm preaching. Now listen to me. That is why Jesus came. Let me say it this way. Jesus didn't come to condemn an already condemned world. That's why he said that. I didn't come to condemn the world. (laughs) Why? Because they're condemned 
already. He didn't come to add judgment on judgment. He didn't come to pour, you know, more contempt on top of what condemned people. That's not what he did. He came to offer rescue, salvation, hope. People, listen to me this morning. We're born in sin. We practice sin. We prefer sin. It's the way we are. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why are believers, unbelievers condemned? Unbelievers are condemned because they have not believed. I won't repeat the point, but verse 18, there's this issue of timing. They have yet to believe. They're still in the natural state of unbelief. The sin that condemns any and all people is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief, the Jews, what an example. The book of Hebrews rehearses this example. You read through Hebrews, you'll see this. These Jewish people who God miraculously rescued from Egypt, they had witnessed the power and presence and protection of God. They crossed the, dead, the Red Sea on dry ground. They drank water from a rock. They ate manna that fell from heaven. They followed a fiery pillar from Egypt to the border of Canaan. They had shoes and clothing that last 40 years. I'd like to find some of those clothes, by the way. That would be, anyway, but what? What did they do when they, when they were told, all right, you see all the blessings and how I cared for you and carried you through the wilderness. Here's Canaan. Here's the promised land. Kadesh Barnea is in front of you. March in and take over. They go, oh, we can't. We don't believe you. What happened to the people who didn't believe? What happened? They died in the wilderness because they didn't believe. It's an active state of unbelief. The second thing, unbelievers are condemned because the light has come into the world. The light has come. John 3, 19 says this. It says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. We return to the subject of night back in chapter 1, or light back in chapter 1, verse 4 to 9. Verse 9 says this, it says that he was the true light which gives light to every man was coming into the world. The idea of Jesus being the light is huge. Nicodemus was standing in the presence of the light. There he was standing there, but because he was yet to be born again, he couldn't see the kingdom. Therefore, he could not enter the kingdom. Light is a theme all the way through John's writings, but not just him. Listen to Psalm 36, verse 9. This is beautiful. Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. We don't even know, we don't even know light when we're looking at it unless the light of God opens our mind to see it. In your light we see light. Psalm 43, 3, send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. You see, God sent life and God sent light. John 8, 12, a little bit later in the book, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus has come. He lights up things so that we can see the truth of our lost, helpless condition. He shines the light so that we can see the light that he offers us. The question comes, why don't more people see the light and believe it? If he's the light that lights up every man and he was coming into the world, why do people reject? Why do not more people hear the gospel and say, oh, I want that. This is so exciting. I'm condemned. I'm lost. I'm headed to hell. But Jesus died for me. Oh, I want that. Why don't they? Because the devil is working overtime. That's number one. Two reasons. But the first one is the devil's working overtime. The devil hates this whole concept. Verse 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. There's that word. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In short order, it's this. The light has come into the world and the devil is mad about it and he's blinding as many people as he can and giving you distractions and making you love the world and all the stuff that's in it so that you don't pay attention to the opportunity that's right in front of us. The light has come. There's something else here. Unbelievers are condemned because, this is really something. Unbelievers are condemned because they love the darkness. Look at verse 19. This is the condemnation that the light is coming to the world and men, speaking of men, women, boys, girls, young, old, rich, poor, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, darkness is always associated in the Scripture with evil, sin, and deception. This is the astounding truth of the passage. You say, Pastor, I thought we were preaching about God so loved the world. (laughs) That's exactly what we're preaching about. But what does He love the world? What kind of situation is the world in when He finds us? You know, people love the dark because their deeds are evil. People love the dark because their deeds are evil. Let me just say this that's not in my notes. They love the darkness because they like to hide. I just want to say something to you. If you have any sense of need to hide anything that you're doing from your family, your friends, your parents, your brothers, your sister, or from anybody, if you have any sense or you feel like you just need to hide something, then let that be the neon sign of truth telling you it's wrong. So it is an indicator. Fellas, I just want you to know if you're looking at stuff and you're doing this, that, or the other, and you think by some form of imagination in your mind that because nobody sees you doing or getting into what you're doing. Just remember Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. There's no such thing as hiding from God. All sin. People love the dark because their deeds are evil. These are the obvious deeds of people that they like to practice in the dark. Listen to Romans 13, 12. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. That is where everybody can see. Not carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. That's not what we're supposed to do. Those are the deeds of darkness. Let's not fool ourselves. Many people hear the gospel, understand it, and have some desire for salvation, but they walked away because they love their sin. They love it. They love the dark. Make no mistake. People are not struggling with their sin. They are living it up in their sin. They love it. I hear it all the time. Oh, pray for old so-and-so over there. He's just struggling. No, 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 no. Get it out of your head. The Scripture doesn't say they're struggling with sin. It says they love sin. Because... Why don't they come into the light? They love the darkness. Oh, my goodness. They love their sin. They just don't want any consequences of their sin. People love the dark because their deeds are evil, and people hate the light because it will expose their sin. I talked about those obvious deeds, those things that we just identify as big sins. I talked about them, and they are big sins. 
But we got something else. We got to think about the context in which we are studying today. What is the context? Well, he just got done talking to Nicodemus, who was a ruler, the ruler and teacher of the Jews. And he just got done. Who was it that he had just confronted in chapter 2 in the temple? In the temple! He confronted the priests. He confronted the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He confronted the religious leaders, the elite, the ones that are supposed to know everything. He confronted them, the ones that are leading all the other people. (laughs) Jesus went to the temple, his father's house, and he found that the leaders were pretending. The priests who were supposed to set the example, point the people to God, teach of righteousness. They had turned their position of spiritual authority into a grand power-broking system of greed and avarice. They were deceivers. They were doing what they did in the dark. Oh, in the light, they had these beautiful robes and these big hats, and they had phylacteries on their head and on their hands. Oh, they had Bible verses taped here, and they stood in the marketplaces and quoted Scripture. Oh, look how holy they are. They're just so wonderful. But in reality, in their hearts, they were like, Jesus said, they were like tombs, filthy, full of dead men's bones. Hmm. They were unbelievers. They needed, like Nicodemus, to be born again. They hated the light because their evil would be exposed. Jesus Jesus shed light on their religious racket, on their scam. Stop and think about this this morning. Whether we are practicing wickedness like drunkenness, illegal drugs, sexual sins of any kind, thieving, murdering, or whatever, or, on the other hand, if we are religionists with some external sheen of self-righteousness, we are still in the dark, lost and condemned from 43 years in the ministry, I can tell you that there is no one so lost as a religiously lost person, a person who has some religion. Oh, my goodness. Religious sins of pride and self-assurance are just as dark and evil as any unsavory, wicked habit that we can name. And then unbelievers are condemned because they won't come to the light. They will not come to the light. I don't want to go down to that church. That guy always makes me feel guilty with all that preaching. I don't like to hang around with those Christian people because they're just goody two-shoes, you know, holy joes and everything. And, you know, they just seem so, you know, righteous. And I don't like those people, so I don't like to hang around them. Make me feel bad about myself. So this idea of stepping into the light is huge. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Darkness, darkness, darkness. People who can just put on a, they can put on their religious hat on Sunday and come to church and hallelujah and amen and Jesus saves and then go live like the devil during the week. They're walking in the darkness. They're lying. They're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Isn't that beautiful? If we walk in the light, we expose ourselves to the searchlight of God's Word and the Holy Spirit, and we say, clean me up, examine me, and see if there's any wicked way in me, Psalm 139, verse 1. Just examine me, Lord. If we do that, then we're just always going to be getting cleaned up. And you know what the result is? Fellowship with one another. People get along better when they're not hiding things. Did you know that? We will get along a whole lot better with everybody if we just walk in the light. More beautifully is the part where it says, in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Do you hate the light? Do you avoid the truth, steer clear of spiritual people? Do you know Jesus? Finally, who escapes condemnation? Verse number 20, this is the crucial point of the whole thing. It's why I called it no neutrality. 
Only the one who comes into the light has his sins revealed, understands his condemnation, and cries out believing that Jesus came to save him and escapes condemnation. Say it again. Only the one who comes into the light and has his sins revealed understands his condemnation and cries out believing that Jesus came to save him and then escapes condemnation. Three points and I'm done. Three little statements. Number one, there is no neutral position. No such thing. You know, well, <clears throat> this is real interesting. I just need to give some thought to this and everything before I decide which side of the fence I want to be on. Sorry. We're condemned when? Already. We're condemned when? There's no neutral position. Don't be fooled by Satan into thinking you can sit off to the side and be uninvolved in the scenario. Well, I'm just going to see, you know, I'll just listen to all this stuff and think about it, contemplate it, and then go on and get my hamburger. No, 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 no. You're involved. You're either condemned or not condemned. You're either saved or lost. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. You're in or you're out. You're in Christ or you're out. You're of your Father in heaven or you're of your Father the devil. There is no neutral position. Next one, to not decide is a decision to remain in condemnation. To not decide is a, is a decision to remain in condemnation. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense, abides on him. Present tense, condemnation. Right here, right now, condemned. You just, your sentence hadn't been carried out, but you're condemned. You're on death row. This may be the most unequivocal and explicit statement in the Bible about this point. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus has the authority to draw a line on the ground that, that separates all of humanity into two groups. He has that authority. He can draw the line on the ground. This, there is a radical difference between Christians and non-Christians. We're either we're either one or we're the other. We're either born again or we're dead in sins. We have come into the light or we're still in the darkness. We are saved from condemnation or we are under condemnation. There is no middle ground. I want to see if I can't illustrate this to you this morning in a very simple way. These are, you know, like bankers' fences type things. I'm going to set this right, right here. And I'm going to get this other one here. Those things are heavy as lead. No, I'm going to put it right over here. I'm going to set it right here, and I'm almost done. Hang with me. I'm almost finished. Jesus, he who is not with me is against me. Can't sit here. Can't stand over here and be uninvolved. We're either with Jesus or we are against Jesus right here right now today I'm either saved or lost I'm either condemned or I am forgiven you get the point I am the child of God or I am the child of the devil I have hope or I have no hope you see Jesus has the authority to draw this line. And until you step across, that's the gift. Anybody that wants to step over here with me, come on. 
<laughs> as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You say, well, where's the love in all of this? Oh, say it with me. For God, so, come on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How many of you, how many of your believers this morning say amen? Oh, come on now. I, I'm standing over here with Jesus. Do I deserve it? No, 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 no. No, I don't deserve it. Did I work for it? Nope. Did I measure up? No, I missed the mark. Did I, did I set a good example? No, I transgressed. I, I went across the line. I, oh, listen, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything, but Jesus deserves everything, and he gave me all that he deserves and said, you can have my righteousness, and if you just believe in me, you can be over here with me. But if you choose not to think about it, put it off. Think on another day. Worry about it when you're older. Go out and have some fun in life. You know, just sow your wild oats, and then when you're old and you've burnt yourself out and lived it up and drunk yourself to death and done whatever you want to do and had serial relationships, when I've just worn it all out, then I'll come to Jesus and miss abundant life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Only Jesus has the authority to draw a line on the ground. Only he, only he. I want to tell you this morning, God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus loved you so much that he followed the Father's plan. And they both love you so much that believing you can have life in his name.